kind of way back here. There we go. I'll move this up here so that I can not sit in it. I don't want it to be lonely. Oh, good morning. Good morning. We're continuing to move through our study of Ephesians. The first three chapters, Paul lays out his vision of the gospel. What is the good news that we as Christians need to know about Jesus, his, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and what does it mean for us now? And he talks during those three chapters about how in Christ we receive the Holy Spirit, that we used to be separated from God, but now we're not anymore because the Spirit of God itself lives within us and among us as those who are in Christ. In Christ we receive power, the same power that, rose, that helped Jesus to be raised from the dead now belongs to those of us who are in Christ and seated at God's right hand where Jesus is. We become adopted children through Christ. That, that there's this incredible dynamic where Jesus is simultaneously our Lord and our brother. Because we are God's adopted children if we are in Christ. He talks about Paul to the church in Ephesians, in Ephesus. We go from death to life by grace through faith. It's not our actions that earn our salvation. Uh, and it's not that we can go and, and do whatever we want and feels good, being our true self all the time. It's that we realize that by grace through faith, we are brought from death to life. And that life starts to look very different than the life of death. That we used to be headed for destruction, but we are now headed towards hope. And so Paul throws out there that this is a very different life, and we get it by grace. He talks about how Jesus tears down the dividing wall to build a multi-ethnic, diverse family. So that by the time we get to the throne room of the Lamb in the book of Revelation, John writes that he sees people of every nation, tribe, and tongue worshiping the Lamb together in one voice. Different languages, but one voice. Different cultures, but one voice. Different appearances, but one voice. This incredible, diverse family that is unlike anything the world has ever known. Uh, the world from Babel until the time uh, of the establishment of the church uh, involved people saying, you're my brother and sister group, and so I'm going to look out for you, and you're going to look out for me, but everyone else is them. And suddenly Jesus comes in and says, here's the thing, if you're in Christ, this is your us. This is your us, this is your we, and it's going to be more diverse of a group and a community than the world has come to understand or know before. But that's what happens in Christ. And that, like Dennis was talking about, that that body then becomes this new temple and new house where God's Spirit dwells. And that it becomes this thing that is an ongoing process of construction and building to become what God desires for it to be. And then we get to the beginning of chapter 4, which is the second half of the book. And Paul uses a phrase in Greek that he uses often when he wants you to really do what he's about to say next. And in Greek, it's uh, parakolo, parakolo. It says, and therefore, therefore I urge you. I urge you is that parakolo. And, and in English, we read I urge, and then we just kind of skip that, and we go to the rest of the sentence, and we're like, okay, you think we should do something. What is the thing you think we ought to do? But for Paul, anytime you see him say I urge, what you need to hear is I really really think that you need to do what I'm about to say next. 
This is not information. This is not invitation. What Paul is giving after that word is always very serious instruction for Christian living. And so as we begin Ephesians 4, what he says is, based on everything I've now told you, therefore do everything else I'm about to say. He's just going from building and explaining the whole gospel to now taking it and saying, now here's the impact and result that it should have on your life. You should change the way you live this Tuesday, next Thursday, and every other day in between and after as a result of what you've just heard. So here's what you do in your, your life. And the broad strokes of this, zoomed out here, is that in the next three chapters, he's going to describe the diverse yet unified and spiritually gifted body of Jesus Christ that is the church today, or is supposed to be the church today. He's going to describe the new human versus the old human. If you used to be dead before you were in Christ and now you're alive, what's the difference? What are the the character traits? What is the morality? What is the goodness that comes with this new humanity that's different from the old humanity? And and then he's going to say, listen, you live in a household with people uh, that are part of your family and some who are part of, he's even going to talk about slaves and masters. That's part of the Roman household. It's not part of our household, but it gives us a glimpse into how Paul understands uh, the house to work and power dynamics within the family to behave. And he's going to give a teaching and say, listen, you Gentiles live one way in your houses and you Jews live another way in your houses and now you're Christians, so your houses should look something like one another. Here's what they should look like. And he gives an image of a family life based on uh, what it means to be a new adopted child in God's diverse and unified family. And he goes from there and he closes uh, the book of Ephesians with with an explanation of of the spiritual warfare that is going on in our world and in our lives. And what is our role in this spiritual warfare, in this spiritual reality that is going on all around us that we can't see but is as real as what we can touch? What is happening and what is our role in that spiritual reality? What is our purpose? How does prayer and how does our life and our choices affect what's going on in the spirit realm? And how does the spirit realm affect what's going on in our lives? And this is how Paul's letter is going to unwind. And he continues to build on the ideas of the gospel, but now with implications about how it affects our our day-to-day existence. So in Ephesians 4, he begins as he moves into this section on how the church is the body of Christ in the world today. And if the church is the body, how does it behave? And he's just laid out this incredible, and if you weren't here last week, you can go listen to this, this incredible vision that the church should be a place where people come from all different walks of life, all different cultures, speaking all kinds of different languages with all kinds of different colors, skin tones, and they come into the body of Jesus and they don't have to leave any of that behind to be in Jesus and to be a united body. And if you know anything about people that are different from one another, you'll know that that can sometimes be very difficult. That's why marriage counseling exists. Two people that used to be different just became one. And they brought their families with them. And that's where marriage counseling starts, right? And so um, one of the things that I think is, is just 
endlessly entertaining. I always, in premarital counseling, when I meet with couples, one of the things that I ask them uh, is explain how your family does Christmas. Uh, and there are some couples uh, that have done holidays apart from one another while they're dating and engaged because the way that they do Christmas is so different that they just need to do it with their own families and we'll figure out how to do it together once we're married. Well, premarital counseling is when you have to talk about how your spouse's family does Christmas wrong and what that means for your future children. And it is fun to talk about that. Fun for me, it's not as much fun for them. But they're different cultures, different worlds that for the rest of their life have to be one family, one person. And so what Paul is writing to uh, these churches that he's writing this letter to and explaining is if you Gentiles and you Jews and you Greeks and you Romans and you people uh, that, that are slaves and masters and men and women and all your different opinions and cultures and views are going to come together, you're going to have to learn how to get along and be this diverse and yet unified group of people. And if you're getting these instructions and you're thinking, boy, I have really spent most of my life disliking those people, and now I have to break the bread that is the body of Christ with them every week, I need some pointers, Paul. So here's where he starts. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. A life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul, what, what, is, what does a life look like that is truly worthy of the calling that we have, have received? And then he describes it, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He says, this is, if you guys, with all your differences and all of your anger that you've had towards one another, the resentment and the hurt are going to come together and, and be the body of Jesus. Here's how you have to start. You've got to be humble and gentle and really patient and bear with one another. We just moved from premarital counseling to marriage counseling. Bear with one another. How long? Until the end. And you're going to be patient and you're going to be humble and you're going to there's this this idea in here of you have to be able to say your needs might be in this moment and in the next moment more important than my needs and if i can just accept that for one more moment then this relationship can grow and strength can be built and relationship can can thrive and we're going to learn how to love each other but it starts by saying i don't have to have my way all the time I can let your way be the way this time. And maybe next time you'll say, you know what, it's my turn to take on humility and realize that your needs have kind of been put aside. And so it becomes this family of people that are so humble and mutually serving one another that the arrogance of I need my way today and tomorrow, so you need to, if you want your way, go somewhere else. You get past that. But how, how, Paul, can we get this idea that with all the divisions that exist in, in the world of, of Rome and the world of, of the apostles, all the divisions of that world and all the divisions that exist in our world today, how can we possibly find something that can hold us together in a world that's putting so many things in the way that should pull us apart? 
He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And he says, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And he lists these ones. And this is one of the times where Paul's repetition should be experienced by the ones who are reading it as a fire hydrant who's just hosing us down with more water than we can drink. It's an overwhelming argument that he's making. He says, listen, there is one of each of these things, one body. And if you want to know what the body is, he's not talking about a congregation. What Paul envisions when he says one body is a group of people that make up the body of Jesus Christ. And it is made up not of a single congregation, not of a single denomination, not of people that do everything right. Since he's still building us, it means none of us are all right. We're still growing, which means he's still fixing the wrong parts, which gives us humility. But the body of Christ is made up of every single human in the past, present, and future who is in Jesus Christ. And you come to be in Jesus Christ through faith and baptism, which both come up in this list. And if you have this one faith and belief in Jesus that is understanding that it's only through grace that you're saved because of his act on the cross and the resurrection, that if you understand that with faith and that you then get immersed in baptism, that you are moved in Christ and all of the humans that have ever done that become the body of Christ. And there is only one body. And the sign that you walk under to on the way to do worship doesn't indicate whether you're part of the body or not. Whether you have the one faith, the one baptism, and the one Lord determines whether you're part of the one body. That's how Jesus understands this, and that's how Paul's explaining it. And so there's one body made up of every person that is an adopted child of God in Jesus Christ. And those people have the one Spirit of God living in them. But not only in them, the Spirit of God doesn't just live in them, but as the stones build the house, which becomes the temple of God, the Spirit also lives among them. So there is something to be said about how the Spirit, when I am on my own with God, is dwelling in me. But there is something about when I'm part of your life and you're part of mine, and we've got this Jesus-infused relationship, that the Spirit is also among us, that it holds us together and connects us in some way. And the more we understand that, the more we can deal with questions like, how can I call someone a brother or sister who votes differently than me? Easy. The spirit among the two of you is stronger than the political differences between the two of you. And it should be able to hold you together even in spite of that difference of opinion. And how can, when there is so much racial division and animosity and confusion and an inability to listen in our world today, can we begin to bridge those gaps? And the answer is simple, is that between me and people who are different than me, if they're in Jesus Christ, we're siblings and the Spirit is in both of us and the Spirit is among all of us. And if you think we can't work through the challenges that are in our world today, what you're saying is the dividing walls between you and me are just too big for the spirit to bridge. 
that's a problem. And Paul knows that's a problem. So as he's explaining how the church can be held together as a unified, diverse body of believers, he says, listen, these are the things that unite you. The body, the spirit, one hope. Hope for a better tomorrow, hope for a better eternity. One Lord. And that word there, Lord, we, we think of it in a spiritual sense, but in their world, it's a, it's a power word. It means one ruler, one king, one master. And if he is the king, the ruler, and the master, then we are Jesus' subjects and followers, and we're obedient to him. But, but above all of that, it has this idea that Jesus has first and foremost our greatest allegiance. It's greatest allegiance. And allegiance has a, a really maybe the strongest connection to loyalty and faith in the New Testament world than anything else in English. And it's important that we remember that because we think of faith as just like, I think about Jesus right. But faith, if we understand it in, in the sense of the New Testament world, really means that I am faithful, I'm loyal to, I am allegiant to my Lord. And so we have this one allegiance to one Lord. And allegiance means that it's first and foremost. And so there's not something else that you're like, well, my first allegiance is to this. And then shortly after that is Jesus in a really close and important second place. That's not how that works. If we're going to be part of this body that's unified, we have to understand that Jesus is our one Lord. And we believe in him with one faith. And we're brought into him through one baptism. And the word baptism is one of our problematic words um, because we don't translate it. It's not translated. It's, it's transliterated. We keep the Greek form and we just make it Englishified. Uh, we run into the same problem with deacon. We take the Greek word for deacon, uh, diokini, Dennis, what is it? There, diokini, and we just Englishify it by dropping the vowel sound at the end and call it deacon. Well, it just means servant. If you translate it, it takes care of a whole lot of the problems we have about what deacons are like in the world today. It's just servants. What are servants like? I'll tell you, they serve by being humble and putting other people first. Run into all kinds of questions about baptism because we don't translate it. Uh, we just keep some modified form of the Greek word, but if you translate it, it's just immersion. It's immersion. So what it means is uh, that all of you who are immersed into Christ Jesus are saved. All of you that are immersed into Christ Jesus are not only immersed into his death, but also immersed into his resurrection. And so it helps us clear up a lot of questions about what baptism is and how it functions, because we then understand it to be you go into the water and the water doesn't do anything, but as an act of faith by grace, you become in Jesus through that immersion. One baptism. Not the many, many immersions and baptisms that we have that are experienced today. That it's through this uh, that Jesus brings us into him and we receive all these other benefits that Paul's talking about in the letter to Ephesus. And there's one God and Father. One God and Father. And because this is poetic, we tend to get into this and we just start going through it and we read through it all very quickly and we're like, man, that's really repetitive and it feels really good and it's really pretty, but we miss how many implications are here that call us to unity. One God and Father. In the last chapter, one of the things he says at the end is that all nations of the earth who take their name from God. 
that he is the father of all nations, not just the ones that Abraham is the father of, that all nations take their name from God. He's the father of all the peoples of the earth. And if you share a father, you're brothers and sisters. And if you're adopted brothers and sisters, of course you share the same father. And so it ends with this claim that Paul's been building to that don't you know that it's not my, my Jewish brothers and sisters now have to go to church with my, my Gentile neighbors. It is that all of us who are in Christ are now brothers and sisters under the one Father from whom all nations take their name. And it's this incredible building, uh, climactic call to unity. And then he says uh, from there, Picking up in, in, in verse 7, picking up verse 7, uh, he says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least, I'm preaching in the wrong chapter. I was like, that feels off. That's good. We'll cover that. <laughs> nope. Okay. Ephesians 4 and verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. I read that because it's actually interesting that, that Paul says, I receive the ministry I received by grace. And he says, but not only me, I'm acting like I skipped the wrong verse on purpose, right? Not only me did I receive my ministry by grace and power in Christ. He says, but so do you. So in verse four, 7 of chapter 4, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why he, it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. We, we think of grace in terms of being saved, that we are saved by grace through faith, but what Paul says is you also receive your spiritual gifts by grace. That by the grace of Jesus, one of the reasons he descended into the earthly regions was so that he could ascend to the heavenly regions where God is, and that as a result of that, you're going to get gifts. And I don't mean presents. What he means is that you're going to get gifts that are talents and jobs and responsibilities. And he describes a few of them here, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. In a section that parallels this uh, significantly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul has another list and he's using the same imagery in that section of the body of believers with diverse gifts being united and working together for the purpose of doing what Jesus does in the world. It's a very similar passage, but he includes a very different list of, of gifts. And I want to include these because together they give us a more full understanding of how God is giving us by the Spirit, because Jesus descended and ascended, Gifts that allow us to do what Jesus needs done. So here's some of the ones he mentions in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, the spiritual gifts of wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, speaking in languages, and the interpreting of languages. That the Spirit gives, these, gives people these, these gifts. And it's interesting, we, we talk about how we don't really, um, 
we wouldn't say probably that any of us has the gift of spiritual healing, that we could go and say, I'm a healer. I'm going to go to the hospital and pray over people and they'll be healed. At the same time, when one of us is sick, we ask our shepherds and our church congregation to pray that that person be healed because that we believe the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. So do we, leave, do we believe that God, by the power of his spirit, can heal people in this world? Yes, and that's why we pray and ask that. We have stories in this church over going back years where people said, my life was headed in this direction, my health was headed in this direction, and the church stood up and prayed for me, and God changed my life. Do we believe that God can still heal today? Our prayers sure indicate that we do. Do we believe uh, that prophecy happens today? We need to understand prophecy a little bit. We often think of prophecy like in a Star Wars kind of fantasy literature kind of way, which is someone uh, goes into a trance and gets a foretelling of the future, and all the prophecies will come true. Yet when you go read the prophets in the Old Testament, the most often and frequently uh, repeated task of the prophet is to just speak the words of God to the people that need to hear them. To speak the words of God to the people that need to hear them. And there's different ways that you can do that. Uh, I am today reading to you from Scripture in a way that is speaking God's words to you in a way that is bringing, uh, being a prophet. And there's something about being a prophet that is important. There's something called the prophetic voice. And the prophetic voice is when people are willing to speak God's truth to anyone, whether it's easy or hard, whether they're powerful or whether they're nobody. The prophetic voice is willing to say in hard times and easy times, this is what you need to hear from God. And we understand this too. While we don't say uh, that someone is ever just prophesying God's word, we do say, I needed to hear something from God today, and you said something to me, and I can tell you right now that the Spirit of God spoke to you to tell me what I needed to hear. That is, in its own way, prophecy. And so don't get hung up on the foretelling side of this, because there's a lot of that in the Old Testament, but it is far, far outweighed by people who are willing to just say the things that God needs the world to hear in this moment and in every moment, and that still happens. And it happens, uh, if we go through the scripture, that's happening in the lives of men, it's happening in the lives of women. Uh, there's, like I think, 15 women who are described as prophetesses or prophets uh, in the Bible. And what they're doing is not necessarily foretelling, but what they're doing is saying, God has given me words that you need to hear, and I'm willing to open my mouth and let you hear them. And so there's people from all walks of life who are able to be prophetic in Scripture and tell people what God needs them to hear. So prophecy is a, a gift that we think about being uh, a long time ago far, far away, but it is in reality as needed and present in the church and the world today as it was then. And it's something, prophecy among these gifts, some of these gifts, um, the apostolic leadership is for the church. It's leadership for the people of God. Um, pastors is the shepherds who are shepherding the sheep, those who are already saved and part of the good shepherd's flock. Teachers are those who, who, by word and by action, are able to pass on not only knowledge, but are also able to teach obedience and good action. The best teachers don't just change our minds, they change our lives. 
But teaching as a spiritual gift is often done within the body of believers who already believe that Jesus is God's son and that he can save us because of who he, who he was and what he did. That we can be saved and placed in Christ. It's the believers are already there. But evangelists, evangelists have a different calling. They have a different gift. Evangelists are called to go to people that don't believe God is their father, that don't believe the word of God, that don't know Jesus and aren't in him, and they try and change that. They go out into the world and they say, let me tell you about my good friend Jesus and the good news of my father. And they proclaim to lost people that they can be saved people. And it's important that we understand that the spiritual giftings that are given are intended for both in-reach and growth of the body and also outreach through evangelism to those who are outside that they can come, come in. But in, Paul continues to describe why we receive these gifts. Why do we receive them? Christ gave all of those roles to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Why does God give us gifts? He gives us gifts so that we can grow each other up towards maturity and unity in the faith and to the fullness of Jesus Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. God gives us these gifts so that we can bless his body, the church. And he gives us gifts that are involved in, in connecting with people that are already in the body, that are in the church, that are, are brothers and sisters. Many of the gifts are intended to be uh, helpful in us growing each other up into the fullness of Jesus. And yet some of the gifts are intended for outreach. They're intended for us to be able to go out in the world and bring people who aren't in Christ into him so the body can grow numerically and can grow in quantity. While the gifts that are internal help us grow in, in quality. There's a, uh, a, an incredible book on church uh, Christian ministry uh, called Managing Polarities. And managing a polarity is that there are some dynamics in churches. This guy, and I forget his name, has eight. Uh, and when you were talking about these eight things in churches, you can do one of them or the other, but you can't do both at the same time, and they're both good. And you need both of them, and if you don't... Go back and forth between the two, your church will be unhealthy and probably die. And one of them is inreach and outreach. Inreach is about relationships and discipleship and growing each other up in faith if you're already in Jesus. Your church has to have that. Bible classes with great teachers, uh, uh, leaders which are helping the body to move forward in a unified direction. It needs people that are building relationships and loving on each other through all kinds of different circumstances and situations. But you also have to have outreach. And you have to be able to go out and connect with, with the lost of the world and bring them in. 
And these are the inhale and exhale of Christian life. The inhale and exhale. Which of those is more important to you? Inhaling or exhaling? Can you do them both at the same time? You can try later. Don't do it now. I thought about doing it, but I thought that'll sound terrible in a microphone, so I'm not even going to try. You can't do them both at the same time. It's like trying to lick your elbow. You can try, but you end up looking really silly while you do it. Okay, you just can't do it. So we know that you can't do both at the same time. We know that they are both necessary to the life of the church. And if a church only tries to do one for the rest of its life, it would be like someone that said, I'm only inhaling from now on. They're going to die pretty quick. If someone says, I'm going to only exhale for the rest of my life, you're not going to make it very long. And if a church says, we're just going to be disciple-making and just grow each other up in the faith, we're not going to worry about evangelism, that's a church that started its move towards death. And if you're a church that says, we're just going to pursue evangelism all the time, all the time, all the time, and you're never growing people up in relationships and in discipleship and in knowledge and wisdom and the actual maturing of faith, then you're also going to be a church that's going to stay shallow and it won't last through tough times. And so you have in-reach and outreach, the inhale and exhale of the church, of the body of Christ that allows it to be helpful. And it's accomplished because Jesus came down and gave us all gifts, gifts designed to help us reach unity in the faith, to be built up into Jesus who is the head, to grow up into Christ-like maturity. You need all of it. And the question has to be asked, what is your gift. And maybe it's clearly stated in this list, and maybe it's not, but God has given you a gift. And a gift that He has intended for you to use in the body so that you can grow it up towards full unity and maturity. He's given you a gift. And the question has to be asked, are you using that gift to build up the body of Christ? Or is something stopping you and getting in your way that's keeping you from doing what Jesus intends for you to do with what he gave you to do it with? What's stopping you from using your gift in the body of Christ? And so here's the questions that you need to be asking this week as you consider what, <coughs> what Jesus did on the cross for you. Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected to give you the same power that raised him from the dead so that you through the Spirit might have gifts to raise up and build up and mature, not only yourself but the entire body of Jesus. And so you need to be asking, do you actually promote unity in the body or do you promote division in the body? Because if you understand the one body, one faith, one Lord, one God and Father, one faith, one baptism, if you understand all of those things, how can you be an agent of division when Jesus has given you such a commission for unity? And the next thing you have to ask is what is the gift or what are the gifts that Jesus came to this earth so that you might have when he went back to be seated with the Father and gave you power through the Spirit? What are the gifts you've been given and are you just sitting on them or are you using them to help the body grow towards full maturity? And if you're not, what's stopping you? What is keeping you from allowing others 
to be blessed by you. And then the next one is this, are you so proud that you won't let others use their spiritual gifts to bless you? And then we're reminded that the first step towards unity that leads towards maturity is humility, gentleness, a willingness to be served and a willingness to serve both take humility. If someone's been given a gift and they want to use it to serve you and bless you and grow you up towards maturity and you say, no thanks, I don't want your generosity, I don't want your benevolence, what you're saying is, sorry, uh, I'm going to be the thing that hinders you from using the spirit gift God gave you. I'm going to say no. We've got to be willing to give and we've got to be willing to receive the gifting of others. And the next question is this, and Dennis alluded to it in his communion talk this morning, is are you growing? Are you growing? Or have you just said, I'm saved, and now I'm just going to make sure I don't sin and lose my salvation, and I'm waiting till the end. I'm just going to hang on and not lose my spot in line. Or are you growing? Are you growing? This week as you're reading and studying Ephesians and as you're in prayer, I want you to be really investigating how have you become more like Jesus this year than you were 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 1 month ago. Is God still growing you up? And if He's not, what are you doing that's allowing, uh, that's preventing, what are you doing that's preventing God from being able to grow you up into the maturity that He desires for you? If you need to respond to that or anything else this morning, I invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.